For June 17th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 572. A brief detour on spam. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are uh, hanging out together and talking about the things we enjoy. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by uh, my fellow overthinkers and very good friends from the internet, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. And Mr. Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How's it going? It's it's going very well. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm also excited for our topic tonight. Uh, we're continuing the trend of counter-programming against the, uh, uh, against the box office... Um, you know, uh, tent poles of the, the summer, the, the summer blockbusters or summer blockbuster hopefuls. And we're going to talk about a little movie that came out on Netflix, uh, called Always Be My Maybe, which, um, was written by Ali Wong and Randall Park with, uh, with another writer and, uh, stars the two of them in a romantic comedy. And, uh, it's probably insulting to say with another writer. And, uh, but it's, it's notable for being, uh, another Another after Crazy Rich Asians, another yet another in the slew of romantic comedies with Asian leads, with uh, you know this this endless um, deluge we're having of uh, of this sort of film. No, it's it's one of a few in uh, uh, in recent memory, and uh, it's also very very uh, very very funny and an interesting an interesting film for uh, a lot of reasons. So. Um, I, I I don't know who should start the conversation uh, about this movie. Is there anyone here who would like to address issues of representation uh, while speaking for all Asians? I suppose I will, if I must. I will take <laughs> on this mantle, this burden for all on behalf of all Asians once again. The burden of uh, representation. Yeah, less than a year after doing so uh, for the advent of crazy rich Asians. Okay, so um, right, you're all aware probably that I'm Asian American myself, um, and am very conscious of these issues of representation and pop culture, pop culture, so on and so forth. And not surprisingly, I really like this movie. Breath of Fresh Air, uh, a second Breath of Fresh Air, such as it were, an even fresher Breath of Air than Crazy Rich Asians, because that movie was very much about the relationship between uh, Asian Americans and Asians in diaspora, uh, and very much more so about wealth than this movie, although that's a part of it. Um, but anyway, this movie is like very much Asian American, and it's like it, it really hits all, checks off a lot of like those representation check boxes for uh, folks like me who want to see themselves in pop culture. Um, both as just kind of like you know uh, protagonists of a story, but at the same uh, at the in, the in the context of quote unquote mainstream culture, while also having their minority cultural aspects represented. So, just in a real brief nutshell, right? These are these characters like the Asianness does not primarily define them. It's more so about like occupation and things that happen to them, and of course, the relationship between each other. But their Asianness really factors into. Uh, the movie and the story that's told um, one particular plot point. And I, I guess spoilers for this, although this is not really a spoiler movie, except for the amazing celebrity cameo, which we'll get to in a little bit. But anyway, um, kimchi chige, which is a very traditional Korean stew, which is cooked by the mother of uh, Randall Park's character, factors pretty prominently 
into the story, um, you know, uh, short way around the long barn, which is that um, the fancy celebrity chef like br- uh, brings it out at the end in her more home style restaurant to represent a connectivity to Asian culture and perhaps more importantly to their childhood. But um, seeing my stinky uh, Korean cultural heritage uh, up on a streaming service uh, and, and presented in a mainstream uh, piece of, uh, of 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 culture uh, was really important and really moving to me, actually. So um, I that, those are all reasons why you know re- reputation representation wise, uh, I was really happy with this movie, um, and I'd be curious uh, to to see what you guys think about this. You have questions for me, who speaks on behalf of all Asians about this? So, so Mark, when yeah. you're saying that it moved you, do you was is it that is it either A or B or both? In that the jokes were funnier. The sentimental things were more sentimental, or, or both of them. I think actually it was more about the sentiment. Okay. Um, I, I, and it's, it's admittedly it's been about a week or so since I've seen this, so it's not super fresh on my mind. Um, but I remember the comedy mostly coming from the gender, the relationship, and and the class aspects of the movie, and uh, secondarily so um, from the more cultural things. But the, particularly the kimchi chike thing was not so much played for laughs. That was very much like. Um, you know, family, culture, these things are beautiful, and oh, it's great to have kimchi chike on the screen. Right, it's also right. delicious, by the way. Try it. Because romantic comedies, right, run the gamut in terms of how funny or how serious they are. And this movie, even though it's starring ostensibly comedic actors, had a lot of sincerity and a lot of moments that even when things that were happening were absurd or silly, were being played for kind of sincere, loving reference rather uh-huh. than kind of joke or satire. That's at least from my perception, not being somebody who's the target audience of all the representations. So I was curious whether that landed harder with you or you noticed more of it. Um, not that you would necessarily know what it was like for me to watch it, but that's not really what anybody cares about, right? Uh, it's as in like, um, yeah, well, so... Let, let, let me put it this it way. Like it, was it, yeah. It, it it heightened for me um, a, a bit of a tonal divide in this movie, right? It was like the 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 comedic parts and and the parts that lend themselves to absurdity. In particular, the Keanu sequence in the middle of it um, felt uh, almost like a different movie of sorts than the like the the family and the kimchi chige scenes. Um, sometimes to a fault, but. Um, I'll be charitable for this and say that you know it uh, like to my theme of my comments here, best of both worlds. Right. Well, that's really cool. Excellent. I mean, just sort of intellectually, this is an interesting movie about Asian America, right? Because it's about kind of a subset of Asian America and a really nice companion piece to Crazy Rich Asians. So, Mark, I don't have authentic experience of being Asian American uh, as you do, but I, but I have a little bit of nerd knowledge of immigration demographics and timeframes that Go feel like they're relevant to this movie. And I want to kind of introduce it. this. So, so uh, and what we can talk about what this means, you know, for race and class and romantic comedy in general after, but uh, we, in Crazy Rich Asians, you know, we saw a movie that was really involved with the globalization and the economic transformation in Asia and the, uh, of course, liberalization also in the United States of immigration there for business purposes as well as personal purposes. And this sort of wave, uh, this new wave over the course of the last like 20 or 30 years of uh, Asians and Southeast Asians into the United States and into the global business community. And that's kind of one particular wave of uh, of of Asians, Asian Americans, it's you know it's been a large group of people by far the biggest surge in the population of Asian Americans that that has been. However, uh, that's not 
and how I understand it, the wave that you come from, right? And the wave that a lot of other people that I grew up with, because I grew up in a town that was about 20% Asian, also came from, which was like there was this big wave of immigration that happened uh, in connection with the various wars and uh, um, kind of civil conflicts that happened in Asia through the mid to late 20th century, whether it's Japanese people immigrating after World War II or before World War II or uh, Vietnamese people or ethnically Chinese people from Vietnam or Laotians, right, who all kind of immigrated in the 70s and 80s. The Korean population, of course, which came in through after the Korean War and through those decades. Uh, and those people... You know, they've been in America for a generation prior to, you know, uh, the the crazy rich Asians showing up with their Singapore billions and their Chinese tens of billions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you're really specifically talking about the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. Right. Yes. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Are you familiar uh, with that? Uh, I mean, just just a bit. Basically, it's, you know, a landmark piece of legislation signed by President Johnson um, took away a lot of the racial quotas you know, like the you know, like uh, took the Chinese Exclusion Act off the books, for example, um, and not really uh, intentionally by the creators of the legislation, but um, the effect was that it really opened up a huge wave of immigration um, from all parts of the world, in particular Asia, uh, and those folks came to the United States. And that's my parents' generation uh, that uh, that came on that wave, right? They arrived in the 70s. Um, and it's uh, implied, you can, you can loosely infer that the main character's parents also came on that wave, right? From Korea and some part of the, uh, the Sinosphere. Such as it were. Um, I, although interestingly, um, and I don't know if this is the direction you want to go, Pete, or perhaps another one. It, it's that, um, in particular, the Korean parents don't closely hew to this, and for no other reason because, in particular, the dad, Randall Park's dad, doesn't have an accent. Mm-hmm. You know, he seems much more Americanized than this immigration pattern would suggest. And what is at least like from my own anecdotal experience, um, you know, for. Uh, Asian Americans of my generation have experience with their parents. So that uh, struck me as curious, but I think the, the broader sociological uh, points you're going to make, Pete, still apply. So keep, uh, keep yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. And I think it makes sense, too, in that uh, in the fact that this this is a guy who's an American, that he is yes. from Korea, but he's an American. Absolutely. He's, yeah, he, settled, he settled down in America a long time ago and had a family in America, had a wife in America. The wife died. I mean, the wife's from Korea, but, you know, she died and, and kind of he has this memory of this golden childhood and the movie is being, you know, written, performed from the generation of the generations of the children. And in in a sort of opposite sense for the way that Crazy Rich Asians is this forward looking movie about what the world might be turning into and sort of ways in which the culture hasn't really caught up with the world. The sort of tropes and well-worn genres need to transform in order to accommodate the way that the world is changing. Uh, It felt to me like and this must also be because of its structure, always be my maybe as a conservative nostalgic movie, but it's nostalgic for a population that we don't usually think of as being conservative and nostalgic. Uh, that is Asian-Americans and the kids of, of Asian-Americans, you know, second generation. Uh, although I always get confused who's first and who's second generation, right? It but, depends uh, who's talking about it. But uh, yeah. when Asian-Americans say second generation, yeah. I mean, like folks like me who were born in the United States. The first generation being those who came to the United States. Right, right. And there's all these little hallmarks in 
uh, always be my maybe that it's that's related to that particular wave of immigration, which was also quoted by country uh, and had separate quotas for Hong Kong and for mainland China. So you have a lot of the population isn't proportional to the population in Asia. The American population of Asian Americans from this time period is spread out between Korea and, uh, you know, the peninsula of Vietnam and Laos and and a lot of people from Hong Kong. So a lot of people who speak Cantonese. Right. So the Chinatowns in the United States are uh, historically are Cantonese speaking, but more and more the Chinese owned businesses that are opening in the United States are Mandarin speaking. And to a lot of white people, that might be an invisible change. But it's a pretty meaningful change, I would think. Uh, for the cultures of immigrants who live here in much the same way that, you know, Italian immigrants uh, came to America and, and founded Italian restaurants when they were ready to move off into the suburbs and leave the kind of urban clusters of their own people because they had assimilated enough to go kind of spread out into the rest of the country. Those businesses get handed down to Albanian people who knew Italian cuisine because they live on the Adriatic and they were familiar with Italy. And then it gets handed down to Latin American people who apprentice under those people. And it's sort of like this ripple that flows through sort of waves of immigration where you have this idea of Chinatown that gets founded and it kind of passes down. And this movie is really nostalgic for Cantonese Chinatown, even to the point where uh, Randall Park's character learns Cantonese in order to show proper respect to the Chinese restaurant from his neighborhood, which in, and, and also it expresses a lot of distaste for uh, modern Asian fusion cuisine. Right. And this sort of like live fast, you know, highfalutin, fancy pants, nouveau riche attitudes about Asian cuisine that are coming in, which are also more globalist and less kind of authentic to the experience that he recognizes. Right. Uh, so it's, it just felt interesting that there was this that it was it was a population that we so much hear and see about being kind of oriented towards what will be but it's a movie that speaks to what was and that's a what was that because people were so underrepresented for so long has been largely invisible so for me that kind of buoyed up the soul of this movie a little bit and, and i remember i was watching i was thinking that must feel really authentic in particular i recognized how the kids were always making jokes about how the parents were really frugal which is not consistent at all with the current wave of immigration, right? Which is like, uh, because th these are people who grew up in like really, really rough situations and, and came in more or less as refugees when the, when the rules were liberalized, uh, as opposed to now where it's a lot of students, right? It's a lot of uh, people who have the resources to immigrate uh, as opposed to people who have to scrimp and save and really hustle. And not, not, not that this is an absolute thing. Obviously, there's all, it takes all kinds. But, but when you're painting immigrant narratives and stuff, there's kind of a certain feel to this generation or that generation that gets kind of expressed in the culture. So I don't know. One of my one of my good friends from work, his family opened a Chinese restaurant in Rhode Island like 30 or 40 years ago. And he's Cantonese speaking and he would tell me about their experience. Right. And so he thinks of himself very much as a Rhode Island guy. But uh, but his family, right, is from Hong Kong. Uh, and and the idea now of what it's like to be, you know, if you're a student and you move to the United States to study and you're from Hong Kong, it's going to be very different than what it was like to come here in the 70s or the 80s. And uh, and I guess that fits into the fact that this is a romantic comedy and comedies are kind of restorative, right? It gets to the end and restores the way things should be. It kind of shows you how things aren't changing in a way that's comforting. It kind of points to a creation of a future generation that holds true to the legacy of the past generation, even as it moves on to the future. It's how you can have a movie that's sort of trope-wise, very similar to something like Notting Hill, uh, but about something that for movies is not nearly as familiar as Hugh Grant you know, stammering in a London bookshop. 
I, um, I mean, familiar. I, I don't know. There's a, I, I mean, I'm interested in it being a romantic comedy because you, you identify a sort of a brand of conservatism uh, in, in the movie w- with the relationship to the kind of the lead characters to their immigrant parents. And there's a, an almost like an, an almost you can have it both ways ness to it. Right. Like, which is that, you know, you can kind of move to a new culture and assimilate and also maintain your own culture in more or less pristine form. Right. Right? Like that, that the restaurant will be uh, will not be this kind of new, unrecognizable, um, unrecognizable thing. It'll go back to like the the, the cooking of home, like the, the you know mom's cooking. Um, and <laughs> the uh, the other brand of conservatism, I think, is the conservatism of the romantic comedy, which is yeah. that you know, which is about like uh, heteronormativity and about a kind of a, a social arrangement that the the underlying economics don't frankly support anymore you know and that like the idea that this you know that the the sort of proper um you know the 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 proper orientation of these people is sort of coupled up and by the way like it's not uh it's it's not for a movie that's concerned about maintaining tradition kind of maintaining a culture maintaining an ethnic an ethnic tradition with sort of um with a, a korean character who whose dad by the way is played by james saito who is a japanese american actor and coincidentally was the shredder in the teenage mutant ninja turtles uh movie that we all remember from our childhoods where they danced to tequila and said <laughs> ninjutsu in the in the the middle of it but who is a real real korean cuisine is dining on turtle soup (laughs) (laughs) but that like um you know that that's interesting but that like uh uh, ali wong's vietnamese character is um is uh you know he's not marrying a nice korean girl right like the food in their house is going to be asian fusion food right that's what their children will will grow up eating because the two you know the two cultures um the two cultures sort of aren't the same i i i feel like this is the movie uh this is a movie for which uh talking about intersectionality is just it's a perfect lens to view um to view the movie through or like the idea of the idea of a salient a salient cleavage let me just review what that means it's a term that comes to us from the tft podcast uh where um where my co-host there ryan was talking about uh uh research uh field work and and research and reading that he'd done uh in africa and um talking about uh, a situation in which um is situation in which two people from different communities meet and they have to very quickly, and they might be on the, 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 the different side of, of different oppositions, you know? Um, so, uh, so let, let me try to give an example. If I run into someone, if I, if I run into, let's say, uh, uh, a woman from Silver Lake, right? I mean, I'm from the west side of Los Angeles and I run into someone from northeast Los Angeles. And uh, we're, from, we're from different cultures, right? Now, I, I, I've, in order to prevent battle between me and my, you know, my, my, uh, the person that I meet on the road, what is that? Not interlocutor, but me and, and the, the person I encounter, I have to very quickly decide um, what is the salient cleavage between us? Is it male, female? 
Is it East Side, West Side? Is it that I'm a carnivore and she's a vegetarian or the other way around? Is it uh, tall, short? You know, is it an ethnic cleavage? Is it a religious cleavage? And so in, in a situation where you have many facets to your identity and you kind of rub up against other people in society, um, it can happen that you have to kind of decide the axis on on which the negotiation is is um going to be is going to happen uh so is it you know what is the salient cleavage between you and there there are plenty in between the 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 two leads right um man woman uh in in the case of the the kind of romantic comedy aspects of this or the or you know rich poor um, employed, unemployed, or, you know, some, something like that, educated, uneducated, or, um, but, but one that doesn't really seem to come up is, uh, is Korean Vietnamese, right? Like, um, they're, they're, they're enough similar that though, though the, the sort of the Asian fusion food of Ali Wong, uh, character is offensive somehow that, that the, the sort of the fusion of, of cultures that their relationship uh, represents isn't, uh, isn't offensive. Anyway, it is, I mean, it is an interesting, it's, it's an interesting lens to view this movie through, I think, like what, what is, what is being negotiated? And what are the kind of what are what territory are we on? What terrain? What access are we turning on every time uh, two characters encounter each other? I think this is an interesting question because I'm not really sure how Vietnamese her character is supposed to be. Like Mark, you were talking about how kimchi jjigae is a stew that you really recognize, and seeing that on screen meant a lot to you. Yeah. I was doing some Googling. I don't get the feeling that the like spam and rice thing that she was having at when she's eating on her own at the very start of the movie is particularly Vietnamese. Uh, so I wonder, and, and we don't really get to see enough of her food that she's actually making ever, except that at the very end, she's opening a restaurant that's going to be all Marcus's mother's dishes, right? So th- that's all Korean stuff. We don't really get to see her doing Vietnamese food. So it seems as if maybe the the divide there is not so much between uh, a, a Vietnamese family and a Korean family as it is a family that had a sort of rich, nurturing home home life and the family of a latchkey kid who was sort of making do on her own with food and wasn't getting to have food that was particularly nice or nurturing. And you see her kind of fancying it up in a way she's doing when at the beginning she like, she, she cooks the spam and then arranges it very artfully and puts a little umbrella on it. I feel like that's supposed to be, uh, that rhymes in a way with the the scene when they're in the fancy restaurant and they get the guy blowing the bubbles of like cotton candy onto the table or something like that. It's really, really intense presentation for food that actually doesn't have a lot going on. Uh, but although, I mean, like, I don't want to, I don't want to dis spam too hard. Like I've eaten it. It's salty and delicious. And I know that there are some kinds of cuisine where spam is thought of as like a normal ingredient. Like if you go to Hawaii, they, they give you spam all the time and you get like spam uh spam sort of like sushi rolls in every convenience store i don't think that's a vietnamese thing so i feel like maybe that could be more the divide that they were going for 
Um, let's take a brief detour on spam, if you will, and then uh, perhaps circle back to the other main topics. Um, to, at least in, for the, in the Korean context, I think this bleeds over into Hawaii as well. Spam gets introduced uh, as a hardship food because there's a huge war and then a lot of American military influence comes in um, and spam is a cheap and plentiful source, relatively plentiful source of protein. And that's why you see it, um, at least in Korean cuisine, I think also in um in, in, in Hawaiian cuisine, sort of that just the broader diaspora aspect of it, and also the intersection of Asian and uh, and American cultures. Um, but I mean, it, 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 does, it, it does kind of fit, right, with the, the Vietnamese piece of it. Again, I don't know if this is a, a part of, of Vietnamese cuisine, but, like, again, a uh, country that was hugely affected by war, had hardship, and also had massive Ameri- American military influence. Like, sure, spam is part of that equation. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. It's a source of mostly salt and fat. The protein is an afterthought. But other than that, I think what you say <laughs> checks out. <laughs> and and certainly many, many tons of spam were brought into Vietnam along with a lot of other more harmful American exports right around that time, for sure. It's almost like I, and there's a whole tradition, of course, of Americans, American cuisines appropriating the hardship salted meats of their forebears. Right. Speaking as somebody who still has corned beef and cabbage every St. Patrick's Day that he can, which is like the spam of the of the way back at way back whens, Right. Although now, of course, it's gotten super fancy, just like the spam that gets fancy in the future. But like that seems interesting. Right. And in that she's she's parentless, I think, is what you're saying, Jordan. And that's interesting because it seems like one of the salient cleavages between the two of them is is his belief in the value and authenticity of his upbringing and then her desire to go and not necessarily assimilate, but globalize. Uh, like He's looking backward. She's looking forward. And that's the kind of romantic comedy uh, salient cleavage between the two of them. Although it's not fair to say that she's looking forward because both things happen in the future. <laughs> right. It's not like he can actually travel back in time. But uh, how, how to articulate it exactly? Uh, if you think of, you know, the immigrant experience as what? You, either you're uh, either you're a turtle or you're a chameleon, right? You either bring your shell with you or you change color to match wherever you go. And that this is or like, you're a rat or you're a rat. ninja and teaches the turtles how to practice ninja. Sorry, you say, or, you're, or you're a rat king uh, who serves as a uh, secondary foil on episodes where you don't want to trot the shredder out. But but this but this is also rooted in the uh, the city of San Francisco and the history of San Francisco as at one point a big concentration of Asian immigration in the United States. And of course, the site of the much exoticized Big Trouble in Little China, right, which is the the second most realistic movie about the Asian experience in San Francisco that I've seen in the last <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> um, they oh, don't dear. make a lot of them. Oh, uh, I mean, actually, let me take a, a moment to ask, are there, uh, other than, than this movie and Big Trouble in Little China, can you think of any movies that are ostensibly about the Asian immigrant experience in San Francisco uh, that, that you've seen. I can't think of any. And it's kind of horrifying because it's just as prevalent as, say, the Italian experience in New York. And there's bazillion movies about that. Right. Uh, or like it likes that that community, that Chinatown in San Francisco is a huge institution and it goes back a long time. Uh, but I, I can't. And of course, Big Trouble in Little China is a little bit more presentationalist. <laughs> what about what's the movie where Bruce Lee kicks the no Chinese allowed sign off of the grass? Is that in San Francisco or is that in L.A.? Oh, oh, is that is it? Are we, is that happening in 
is that a movie that Bruce Lee is in or is in that dragon? Is that in dragon, the Bruce Lee story? No, it's a movie that he's in. And okay. I think it's, you know, I don't even remember the movie. I don't think it's supposed to be a good movie. I don't think, he, I think he's a villain in it, but there's that iconic shot of him just like, you know, uh, just oh. obliterating the, uh, the, like the legislated word of racism with a totally awesome jump kick. Um, I'll, oh, I'll find Fist, it and Fist throw it in the show notes. Fist of Fury is what it's called. Uh, it's it's a Fist of Fury. It's a 1972 Hong Kong film. Um, and where does it take place? Well, we can find that out. And we uh, we'll get that on the show notes. Uh, so maybe so maybe there's a Bruce Lee movie in there somewhere. Jackie Chan is in that movie as as well, which is pretty exciting. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just uh, the the point being that this movie has a conflict. This movie is about the gentrification of San Francisco, and the context of the gentrification of San Francisco is that the the people who have lived there for generation or two, for two for multiple generations, and for whom it is their home and their city and their culture, are Asian Americans. And the people who are coming in and kind of being the disruption that are kind of pushing them out and compromising their authenticity with their highfalutin fancy new ways and their money and their their sort of cheap thrills are, well, it's identified as white people and techies who are something of, a, of synonyms in this movie, right? They're sort of all the white people are techies and all the techies are, are white people. Uh, and, and they come in and they appropriate parts of Chinese, uh, you know, Asian culture, Chinese fusion, Asian fusion cuisine, and all this kind of uh, weird, authentic way of living and bring their schmanciness to the various parts of the city. And so, I don't know, Matt, if that f- answers part of the question of your of your uh, sitting and cleavage, it's it's basically the sell side versus the buy side of the San Francisco real estate market. Yeah, spe- I mean, speaking as someone who enjoys uh, fancy coffee shops... Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's uh, Randall Park's character, Marcus and his dad, who kind of joke about that when they're talking about where they're putting in where they're putting in the water heater uh, when they're doing it in uh, Sasha's rented house. Um, You know, they they, it's like, well, are you doing it for a coffee shop that's opening in an old uh, laundromat? It's like, no, we're doing it for a record store that's opening in an old, you know, flower factor mill or something. I don't know what exactly the joke is, but that's, you know, that that's that's the thing. And in one of his lyrics, uh, in one of uh, Marcus's lyrics in uh, that he sings with his band is that he's going to, you know, he's going to drop he's going to drop body drop with his karate chop any hipster in a coffee shop. You know, that like uh, uh, that he he is the one who kind of has the animosity. um, He has the animosity for this sort of thing. I I mean, the interesting thing is that they've held on to their house, which is worth uh, many times, uh, many times what they bought it for uh, now back in the day. And they're not they're not susceptible because they're not renters. They're not susceptible to what happened in other parts of San Francisco, like the mission where, you know, new landlords bought the bought the buildings you know forced out the the rent controlled tenants and then and then jacked up the rents they can you know as long as they can hold on um and there are a couple of property tax things specific to California, which make it possible to hold on, uh, hold on a little longer. I'll, I'll put proposition 13 in the, in the, um, in the, uh, show notes. If you're, if you're interested in that alongside. So, so, the, to, be, so to be clear, like it's about gentrification, but it's also not right. It's, it's having his cake and eating his too. Right. I mean that, um, you know, that divide there between like the, the OG Chinatown community and then the white hipsters. Yeah. That's, that's a real thing that's in there. But this is also not like, um, you know, that uh, Randall Park's family getting 
displaced, truly, truly displaced, no, and yeah, getting they, kicked out, right? In a way that, like, you know, the, the Hispanics in the mission are actually getting displaced. Yeah, I guess, I, sorry, I was trying to make two points at once, which is why maybe I was going nowhere. One is that all the, the animus towards gentrification comes from, um, comes from the Kim family, um, not from uh, Sasha's family, right? Because they sold their house, and the parents live somewhere else. They live out on a suburban-looking street in a detached, you know, kind of ranch-style house with a big backyard and stuff where they throw uh, they throw the birthday party for the cousin's son. Um, that's, uh, they, they got out. So they're not suffering from, from gentrification. And, uh, you know, it seems like the sort of thing that Ali Wong's character would not be necessarily against because it generally raises the quality of coffee that's available, you know, to, in, in the neighborhood. And like, it's, it's a better neighborhood if you can pay $6 for a coffee instead of, you know, a buck 50 for a coffee. But, uh, the, the other point, uh, related, but distinct that I was trying to make is what you're saying that, that the Kim family isn't suffering from gentrification like the way that they suffer is that you know beloved local institutions close but their business uh seems to be doing pretty good the the you know hvac um sort of thing is is uh, uh business is booming yeah and it's worth in noting that yeah because because gentrification isn't the only word that you can use to describe what happens when these kinds of changes happen although of course it feels kind of offensive to not use that word sometimes even if the paradigm that's being explored is totally different but one dimension that's interesting to that is that the movie kind of doesn't explore as much as it might is the notion that marcus's change aversion is rooted in the loss of his mother right that if his mother that his father doesn't need his father is dating diana ross in this movie right which is which is ludicrous uh right but uh, but amazing um and and so his father is is looking forward pretty, and Randall, pretty much everyone is punching above their weight romantically yeah. you know like, i mean that's kind of what happens in these movies right at, at, the, at this there's so, the, so many of the sins that this movie commits are the exact same sins you would expect from any other romantic comedy and i found that really refreshing it's like well how how can that unattractive person get with that much more attractive person and it's like oh it's a romantic comedy this stuff happens all the time if this were a white person movie he'd be played by kevin james right like that's how it would work um but uh but in but but in this movie it's it's randall in particular his objection to the loss of the identity of his neighborhood is also rooted in his attachment problems because of the loss of his mom and and because his mom was taken away from him without his consent, he's trying to hold on. And because he's holding on so close to his dad, he's not open to a mature relationship with another adult of his own generation, right? Because he hasn't individuated from his parents because his mom died, which the movie sort of touches on a little bit, but keeps it real light, right? Kind of like dances dances over the surface of the water without falling in, uh, kind of uh, a House of Flying Daggers style or whatever, uh, <laughs> to make an appropriate reference. Uh, what was no? Is that, what am I thinking of that movie or am I thinking of Hero? What's the one where they have the wonderful scene where they dance across the surface of the water? Anyway, you know, when when you bring this up, it actually makes the ending of it pretty, pretty weirdly incestuous and dark because he never got over the fact that his mom died and she never had parents at all, but kind of like attached herself to his mom. And then at the end, the happy ending is she's like, what if I started like, what if I recreated your childhood home as a restaurant and I made all of your mom's food for you? And also we had sex. Yeah, that is, I mean, romantic comedies are weird, right? That is awfully weird, Jordan. Jeez. I hadn't uh, thought of it. 
way, but uh, when he, when he, okay, yeah, when he put it that way, I guess it's less of a beautiful celebration of. Wait, am I am I, I am I the only oh. person who's not completely horrified by what Jordan said? Like, I, I think it's sort oh, of no. normal. Like, yeah. like, like psychoanalysis would say that your job as a as a like a mature, like well functioning, um, you know, person coming into into sexual maturity is to find a partner who is enough like your parents to be interesting and uh, enough unlike your parents to not make you crazy all the damn time. So, you know, that's uh that's like like it's uh you're you're trying the idea is that you're you're trying to um to kind of thread a very particular needle and it 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 does like it is not phrasing. Uh, huh? <laughs> sorry sorry it's like you're trying to penetrate into a very pretend no that's not good it's like <laughs> it's like you're a rocket ship and you're trying to blast no um okay it's like you're riding a train and in front of oh god i can't i can't do it my my, my point is that of the of the sort of hand wavy things where where this film or any romantic comedy gets to have its cake and eat it too, that was actually not the one that bothered me the most um, of the things. But but Pete said something interesting uh, early on, and I wonder if it might be a, an interesting avenue to go down, uh, which is that this this movie is a comedy, and comedies are restorative, right? So so comedy involves let's let's uh, let's take my favorite Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, you start in court. You go into the woods and you come back to court where order is restored and all the stuff that's going on, uh, you know, uh, all the stuff that's that has the craziness that has been going on is kind of done away with. Um, and uh, you, you just sort of forget about it. It doesn't matter. Never mind uh, my my preoccupation with our four legged friends. Let's uh, let's just take take that shape of like uh court woods court or like good version crazy like good world crazy world good world right so the 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 good world is when they're growing up together um and are inseparable when uh, marcus and sasha are right bad world begins when marcus is a jerk to her in the burger king after they have sex uh and a, a number of things happen to kind of make crazy world happen. Like Marcus uh, is, you know, stuck in, in arrested development. Um, Sasha goes off and, you know, uh, has no, is kind of unmoored and is, um, you know, uh, into pointless uh, fancy things without any real heart or substance to them. And then they, then they have to come back together. Like what, what has to happen? And, and I think it's not quite as straightforward as, as we were, as it appears at first, what has to happen in order to get back in order to get back to good world from, from crazy world, right? Like, uh, the, the, Randall has to grow up. That's for sure. But he has to punch Keanu Reeves. Yeah, that's pretty pivotal. <laughs> that's my favorite part of the hero's journey, right? The bottom <laughs> method. It's just smack Keanu upside the head. Uh, I mean, Keanu, <laughs> John Wick. Keanu is an important enough cultural figure that I think he does deserve a place in the monomyth right right there between like approach to the cave and uh you know the ultimate boon is is sakiano reeves but uh i i think her journey is more interesting um i think it's her movie in a sense more more than it's his and that's um 
so so what does she have to do? She has to like reject fancy things in favor and you know embrace her identity as a mom. Is I mean, is that it, or is it more complicated than that? Man, that's a tough question. So in this one, she has to. So I'm just sort of going through the beats in my head, right? She has to try. She has to lose. And then she has to try to get back what she lost. And then she has to realize upon getting back what she lost that it's not what she wanted. Yeah. And and so there's this sort of stutter step, right? It's it's that she has to kind of almost get back and then find that she has to go back a different way. And in that in this movie, that's represented by how Keanu Reeves ends up being a violent narcissist. Um, and punching and punching Marcus as well. Which, by the way, have you been have you been clocking the all the Keanu Reeves articles that have come out since this since this cameo that are like uh, Keanu Reeves is like the most down to earth, um, you know, like happy guy. It seems to be kind to everybody. You know, he he really wears his celebrity lightly. Everyone like he gives up his seat to women on the on the subway. Like all this all these articles about. Keanu Reeves. Keanu is is just too good for this world, um, yeah. I think. Which is which is great that that John Wick John Wick has a, a real real tender side. But I mean, so so here, here's what I was thinking. Like yeah. when they get together first, when when Marcus and Sasha get together first, I uh, I hit the little button on the remote for the Netflix app uh, just to see like wow how much time is left in this movie, and it was like. 45 minutes or something like that. And I was like, Oh poop. Like, okay, how is this going to go bad? And then, and then get good again. Right. And I, I, uh, I sort of think the way it went bad was not the most interesting way that, that, that it could have gone bad. Uh, you know, I, I would have been, I would have been, um, more interested in, in another couple of things, but what what happens is that Marcus can't hang, you know, right? Like he's he's uh, he feels humiliated, he, you know. He feels like um, he, you know, a, a second class citizen. He feels like she, you know, wants to to uh, I don't know, dictate his life or or something like that. And he he's got to just he's got to just sort of get over that. And and I I thought like maybe one. Imagine a counterfactual, right? Like, imagine a movie in which his band just took off and all of a sudden he was legit famous uh, and she was celebrity chef famous, right? And and kind of rebalancing in terms of that. As it is, he thinks he's doing well, but it's actually just her buying all of his tennis balls. Uh, you know, he he thinks the band is 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 blowing up, but uh, but it's not. You know, and so you know, I don't know the the. This was like, as opposed to the sublime middle of the movie, this was the, uh, this was the kind of the less, this was where I whipped out my phone and started playing, uh, playing video games on it while the, while this part of it, uh, this part of it progressed, um, until, until about the time he went to Tom Ford. So is it that, oh, go ahead. Yep. There's an interesting similarity there in that uh, Sasha's miserable childhood was her parents providing for her very well financially and not being in her life. And then uh, there's a stage in the movie where she is providing for him financially, but not actually being in his life. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting. So she's and she's she's mirroring what her parents did for her, for him, because he wants her to be his mom. And instead, she becomes her mom. 
Which yeah, is something <laughs> like that. Man. <laughs> I, well, it's like, I, I, oh, that's a classic error. You know, you just you you became the wrong mom. What can you do? Yeah, it's interesting to think of this movie as a bait and switch, where it starts out as a movie about Randall, where Randall his girl goes away and then comes back. And when you were talking about the line that from the movie that really jumped out at me was when she's going to go back to New York. And she's I think she says something along the lines of like, I was always going to go back to New York because that's the other thing that needs to happen is that, oh, no, this isn't a movie about her leaving San Francisco and coming back to San Francisco. This is a movie about her leaving New York, going back to San Francisco to find out what the missing ingredient is. For her for her cooking career and then go back to New York. I, I'm actually trying to remember what city they actually end the movie in because I kind of lost I lost a little bit of energy near the end of this movie as well. They end up in New York, right? And the end of it, or do they go back to San Francisco? Well, yeah, it's not it's not clear. They just where go to they, Kansas City. They just split the difference. Yeah, it's not clear <laughs> where they, where they end up, but it is interesting that she is part of the kind of the you know the big city kind of cultural. Um, uh, big wigs, you know, uh, that, that she probably is headed towards a restaurant empire with outposts in, you know, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Las Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. She's, she's the David Chang is really what she is. And, and by the way, the restaurant at the end, it does take place in New York. So it, they don't split the difference in that regard. Um, gotcha. just all to say it's coastline and everything you guys said there, where it's like the, the balance is not really quite struck there. It's, Sorry, really, man, it's interesting to think of it as a second immigrant story in that what needs to happen is that if the issue was that the good thing that happened is their families came from Korea and Vietnam and brought what mattered to them to San Francisco and built a life in San Francisco that was rooted in the values that they had there, then this is a movie about how to cross the coast and immigrate again from San Francisco to New York and to realize that what you really need to do to survive and build a family is to bring the culture that you had back where you grew up. It's sort of a, she needs to reenact what the parents of both of these families did. Well, at least uh, what they should have done, right? The sort of idyllic idea of what they did and also bring her heritage with her. She has to go back and get him and and carry him along because otherwise she's not going to know what it was really like to be Asian, which is again, like romantic comedies get really, get an excuse to get really weird. Weird because they come off as so harmless, but they can get very psychologically strange. Uh, and I think this movie definitely gets a little bit yeah, weird. She's, she's she's very very normal given her upbringing, given that level yeah. of neglect, right? Yeah. Like she being the kind of the more stable one who's like, look, Marcus, I love you, but this is my life. I want you yeah. in it if you want to come along, right? Like that's a level of self-possession <laughs> that, that you don't necessarily get. Uh, that's like a stable attachment style. And that's not, uh, that's not what that upbringing produces. So here's another thing she it's, does. I mean, she moves. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say, it's also not what romantic comedies ever, 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 ever show you. Right. Yeah. Un- that- unpack that. What do you mean? I mean that people in romantic comedies do not exhibit stable attachment styles by and large. Yeah, there's uh, they're, they're either ambivalent or avoidant. They're either like I love you, I hate you, I love you, I can't stand you, I love you, you know, get away from me, or they're like I am a rock, I am an island, uh, you know. And it's yeah. the it's the it's the kind of the bridging of that 
of those gaps that ma- you know managed to uh, to kind of make the the drama um, seem like psychologically compelling and also have some have some stakes a little bit where it's where it's like hey you know I'm I'm really into you and I'm I'm here for a relationship if that is something that interests you <laughs> doesn't seem particularly dramatic does it though though it, is, though it sounds very nice sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. If, if anything, that's usually what the what the Baxter character will do, right? Like the inappropriate boyfriend or girlfriend that they're going to leave for the one that they're supposed to be with will say, "Oh, well, of course I love you, but I also have to do my job and things like that." You know, you know, where's the spoon there? Uh, but when when she gave that speech where she was like, "Look, I can't really deal with your nonsense. I'm going to go to New York. I'd love it if you came with." I actually like, you know, I, I was like staring around the room, being like, "Wait, am I actually hearing this from from a character?" <laughs> in a romantic comedy this is amazing i would have been so much healthier in my, my early romantic engagements if i had had this kind of thing to model myself after yeah. <laughs> uh i was just gonna throw in that she she moves to new york for work and then repatriates money back home to her family in the place that she came from which is another kind of immigrant story thing but now i'm thinking about all of the worst uh, lines in romantic comedies with regards to attachment. What I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her or something. <laughs> That's a pretty bad one. What What are some terrible, terrible romantic comedy moments from from uh, an attachment, uh, healthy attachment perspective? Oh well, first of all, he should not have had her at hello. He had a lot of work to do, and he did some of it in the speech. But if he had her at hello, then that's a problem, and she needs to talk to someone about it. She's like, "Oh, you just you came back, and that was enough, Jerry Maguire, right? Like, I I didn't listen to any of this, and I didn't require any personal growth from you at all. I merely needed you to return, and I was willing to recapitulate all the problems that we've been previously experiencing in our relationship." God, is it? I feel like I'm the one that's like, "Oh, he had her at hello. That's so sweet." God, am I am I just completely taken in by this genre? <laughs> And you guys are all you guys are all probably a lot healthier than I no. am. No, I just because I love this crap. Like yeah. I, you know, I eat this up with a spoon. As ridiculous <laughs> as it clearly is all the time, you know. Like uh, I, you know, I just I just love it. I I also cry when the child is reunited with the dog uh, because the dog is so loyal and the child loves the dog so much. So no, you know, just, I mean, you go ahead, Jordan. Spam is delicious. What can we? What can you do about it? But but also, we're using intellectualization of this as a self defense against its emotional power, right? It's like, well, I don't have to think about that because I mean, I listen to Richard Marx more than the average person for sure by a huge margin, and he never gives good romantic advice in his songs. I right? like, and I still connect with it. But I'm broken too. Like that. Like that's the it's thing, funny. right? Is that I like, listen to I listen to the Mountain Goats more than the average person, and every Mountain Goats song is a is a just a record of the terrain of 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 uh apocalyptic damage wrought on one person by another but it's i mean yeah it it is i guess the the thinking thinking of this as sort of comforting fantasy like it it is it kind of operates on a number it operates on a number of different dimensions one is that you're okay the way you are 
right? Which is not true because, you know, (laughs) going back to the psychoanalytic reading from, from before, like if something reminds you of home, run very fast in the other direction, right? Because odds are, uh, odds are it's going to go, it's going to go, uh, South (laughs) somehow, you know, um, you're just going to reenact what, what you're familiar with, right? Like you're not okay the way you are. You have to do a lot of work on yourself to be, uh, to be okay. Another is that like, um, so yeah, a, you don't have to change, uh, B like, um, the way that you were, I don't know the, the, like the, the future looks like the past, right. Is another sort of comforting thing. And, and the other is like that there's an end point to, to all of this. Right. And the, the, uh, the panel, the entire panel here who has some experience of stable relationships, I think will attest that, that, um, like, uh, like, uh, the mummy Emotep wrote, uh, scratched on the inside of his sarcophagus, death is only the beginning. Well, like the, the instigation of a serious relationship, right. Is only the beginning. If anything, the work gets, gets harder, uh, because it's closer and, you know, and there's kind of no reprieve from the, from the, the presence of the other that you have to kind of manage and kind of manage yourself in relation to. So like the, 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 there are a number, there are a number of ways, um, that romantic comedies are BS, but seem so nice. Right. I don't know. Are there other ones that I'm, that I'm, uh, 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 forgetting or does anything like this, do any thoughts like this occur to you? I just want to ask Mark if, from an Asian perspective, the image of Imhotep scratching on the inside of a sarcophagus reminds him of how romance works. Uh, <laughs> we don't have any Asian. Rep- I guess that's that's African representation, just barely <laughs> in this metaphor. I was, I was trying to make some joke about how Confucius was constantly etching things inside of his sarcophagus, but no, that's uh, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, okay, yeah. So uh, again, also co-signing the 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 romant the ridiculousness of the romantic comedy pieces there. Um, I don't know, like the big gestures, the big speech, right? How that that's a um, is portrayed as a an effective thing, and uh, more often than not, is uh, crash lands very poorly. It just rarely ever happens, right? Because um, uh, well, that's the point of these movies, right? Is that they um, put very much externally on the outside, you know, all these feelings that we mostly have bottled up and, um, and are just so inarticulate that we cannot get out. Right. I mean, what'd you guys think of like the big speech at the end there while we're talking about that? Oh man, the big speech at the end of this movie or of yeah, at the end of the, at the end of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm trying to remember it. Who gives it? I mean, honestly, what you said I, was I'm just a bag check guy standing in front of a woman with a purse asking her to love him. Basically that I, it, it did feel very much like that particular one. And also I, when it came rolling around, I definitely stepped out of the movie for a minute and started thinking about genre and saying, oh, well, he, now he's going to do the big speech. It's that time. Uh, so in that sense, I guess it wasn't a 100 percent successful one. I don't think you're meant to be thinking about it on a meta level. I did think the I'm willing to hold your purse for you or I would love to hold your purse was a kind of an interesting quasi-feminist uh, gesture, which was sort of appreciated on that level. I was like, yeah, you know, he he should be making some concessions to let her keep her fantastically successful career rather than her having to abandon it, which is the way that all too often movies about successful career women end up going. 
but it didn't feel like that was much of what the movie was about really. So although I was like, yes, that's how that should be resolved. It didn't even really feel like a conflict that had been in need of resolution. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, because I think maybe this movie is a little bit more healthy in certain ways than others. One movie I'm thinking about right now is, is Sleepless in Seattle, which is similar to this movie in that it has like somebody who has like a really deep wound that gets healed by getting into a relationship. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't feel authentic to me <laughs> um, in, in the sense of like that, like like something like the combination of being really, really wounded and hurt. And then that's the thing that ends up getting you into the relationship that ends up being healthy and sustaining you through your life. And also like having a really intense a uh, moment where you really dig into what your relationship is about when you're in a very dramatic setting doing some sort of leisure activity that's like very enjoyable right whereas whereas the opposite would be uh you know you get into a relationship when you're when you're feeling relatively whole and when things are like relatively not so bad and when you're really distressed that doesn't tend to be when you get into good relationships and, and I'm, I'm putting that out there as like a conjecture and the other one being that the times when you really have the intense conversations are like the moments at home not the moments on like the cliff face in the sunset right like or like when sort of everyday things are happening that and you're tired from work or things like that i mean i don't know what about those two big romantic comedy uh tropes that are going on um the kid rooting for you is another one uh is the kid where the kid will write the love letters on your behalf and that's not super creepy um man yeah that whole piece about like the wound uh that needs to be healed right it makes you think of a couple of things one is uh, the the line you complete me right Right, right. She needs she has something that needs to be completed because she's not whole. Uh, but the other though is Matt, your formulation of like the court woods court um, structure, right? Does that is that compatible with this notion of the wound that needs to be healed? Yeah, I mean, I I think so because the it's in general like the woods are a kind of a place of like lawlessness and like like a kind of suspension of of safety you know um so the woods are the woods are dangerous um and by the way uh sometimes you get magicked into a donkey um <laughs> there it is or billy crystal hey <laughs> uh right no some, sometimes like sometimes bad things can can happen and the, the the point of the woods the wood section um is that like it's really compelling because you can get a lot closer to your drives you know you can get a lot closer to your quote-unquote true desires but it's also really dangerous because the um the safety rails that the law and the kind of the social customs and things like that uh put put on to life um don't exist uh don't exist in the woods you can you know you can get like eaten by a wolf or you can you know get trampled by a giant or or something like this um a lot of uh, it's pretty good uh, for pretty good exploration of this you can kind of see into the woods which uh which does this structure uh, for the whole first act to the point where the, the first act of Into the Woods is so dramatically complete that it's, it actually exists as a separate work to be performed by high schools. But then the, the dark messed up parts of this where it's like, okay, let's, let's do this again. But like for real life now, um, where there are no easy answers and there, there are no, 
you know, there, there are no uh, good guys and bad guys. And like even the giant who you're trying to slay has like a legitimate beef with you. And that's why she trampled your, uh, that's why she trampled your village. Like, you know, she was, she was mad at Jack for killing her husband, you know, that, that stands to reason, um, that, that, uh, is where all this, this stuff happens about sort of danger and kind of, kind of un, uh, Unclarity. So, like the 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 restoration of order, the kind of the healing of of uh, healing of a wound, is about a, a return not so much to health but to safety and to um, you know not not so much to sort of uh, thriving, right? Uh, but but to uh, to order and to uh, predictability, and that's um, you know not not an unmixed blessing, uh, but it's generally framed as being superior, uh, superior to the part in the woods, even though the reason everyone comes to the show is because the part in the woods is fun. Right. Have you, are you guys familiar with a little movie called, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you you go, please. Oh, okay. I was going to ask if you guys are familiar with a little movie called Captain Ron. You guys ever watched Captain Ron? No, I know of it, but no, no. Uh, I mean, it's just a very brief point. Captain Ron is a similar sort of movie. It's Martin Short and uh, and his wife, who is in the movie, not played by as big of a a big of a star. Mary Kay Place, I believe, take their family, their two kids out on a boat. And uh, the boat is captained by Kurt Russell wearing an eye patch, who has all the sort of, you know, uh, id driven man qualities that overly modernized Martin Short doesn't have. And there's this whole sort of like adventure in the Caribbean with pirates and well, and uh, it's pirates of the Caribbean. Well, they're actual pirates with like AK 47s and stuff. And the thing that just I thought of is that when they get the boat back to shore, right. And the marriage is restored and the family is restored and they get to keep the boat and captain Ron uh, sails away. Captain Ron no longer has to wear an eye patch. <laughs> there's this like weird note that the wound has been healed and it isn't even the wound of the protagonist although captain ron is something of a psychological aspect of of uh, martin short's character i would su- i would suggest through the interpretation but uh yeah but i might i'm even refer to this as you know midsummer night's dream uh on a boat on a boat sorry jordan you go ahead i'm sure you had something more relevant to say <laughs> not to plug <laughs> captain ron for everybody it's pretty pretty close, actually. I was thinking a little bit of City Slickers, where the part of that boat is played by a cow. Um, <laughs> but there's a there's a theory of the comedy. Weirdly enough, it's by uh, Eric Siegel, who's mostly famous for having written Love Story. Uh, so known for his sappy melodramas, not for his comic chops. But it, I think it holds up pretty well. And the idea is that comedies always involve someone wanting something that they can't have and they try really hard to get it and then at the end they they sort of realize they can't get it and there's this sort of almost what we would call a sour grapes moment where they're like yeah i don't really want that anyway and then either the movie just ends uh and you could see this in something like um i don't know the secret of my success where he doesn't actually become a you know pimp for want of a better word he goes back to being a high school student uh and then the other kind of thing you can see is where after they have given up uh the universe magically gives them this thing that they they should have had no business wanting and american pie is my go-to example for this where that whole movie is they all want to have sex and they all go through all of these shenanigans to try to have sex and then at the end all of them decide not to try anymore and then magically 
eventually they all have sex in like the last 30 minutes of the movie or something like that, or five minutes of the movie, maybe. Uh, and you can think of this as, um, you know, it has that court woods court structure. I guess kind of what the way that it would project onto this movie is that uh, Ali Wong's character, Sasha, thinks that her family is hostile to her, like her parents don't really love her, and that her love interest is hostile to her. You know, he was a jerk to her in McDonald's. And then uh, she's going to go get her groove back. So she she comes back home and she interacts with her parents and she interacts with Marcus and uh, tries to build stable relationships with both of them, more with him. Like, she's more annoyed at her parents. But they do have those crucial interactions there. And then she goes back to New York and she's given up on the idea of having a sort of happy childhood, recreating her happy childhood as an adult back in San Francisco. And then magically the universe provides these things and both her parents and Marcus come back to New York and like they give the speech that they were incapable of actually giving right so there's nothing about his development as a human being that makes us think that he ought to be able to come give her that speech saying yeah I'll just carry your purse for you I don't care I'm I'm in this for the long haul there's nothing about her parents that makes it seem like they're going to show up and say hey we're really sorry about the way we treated you we're here now now uh, we no longer care about money, right? We uh, we paid full price at your restaurant, and now we're ready to be emotional, supportive people. That's just the comedy happy ending. But in a way, her speech where she's like, look, I am willing to have a relationship with you if you can be in a healthy relationship with me, and otherwise not, if not not, that's her giving up on the kind of attachment that she actually wanted, where it was this all-consuming thing. And that that's her... Uh, you know, that's the point where she abandons the idea of this thing that she never really wanted to have, where she, uh, you know, where Tom Cruise gives up his pimping business, where uh, where all of the guys in American Pie say, yeah, sex is for other people, I suppose. Um, and that's that's sort of what she's being rewarded for when then magically everything comes to New York with her. That's That, that would be my way of reading it through that, I and, guess. And then like, uh, like in American Pie, when they're doing it, uh, he says, oh, Sasha. And she says... Call me Marcus's mom. No, Stifler's mom joke didn't. didn't, didn't. Okay, remember earlier when you were saying that all of us are much better adjusted than you are. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's as good a place as any to leave it. Let's uh, let's leave it there. If you'd like to uh, jump in on the conversation around, always be my maybe, maybe definitely a good watch. Oh, and we didn't even talk about the soundtrack, which is you know a whole other hour that we could do. But uh, uh, maybe we can leave that as an exercise to the listener head over to overthinkingit.com hop into the show notes you'll find a place to comment there we would love to talk with you about this movie which is well worth the watch on netflix thanks for listening thanks very much to pete to mark and to jordan for podcasting we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably doesn't 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 deserve deserve.
Hey, Mark, I've got another romantic comedy that I want to watch, but I feel like I can't watch it because I can't appreciate the perspective of the representation in it. And I was hoping that you could sit down and watch it with me so that you could speak for all the people in it. Okay, what movie is this? Do you have in mind? Uh, it's, it's it's called Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh! <laughs> like she's from Alabama, but she moved to the big city, and then she met the donkeys in the woods and has to go back. Yeah. And I don't understand any of the Alabama. And you, speaking for all people from Alabama, would more than anyone be able to uh, solve that little conundrum, that little <laughs> riddle wrapped in an enigma. Uh, that, that after after the kimchi chige sequence, uh, like you know. That 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 was pretty raw there, but Sweet Home Alabama, that's way too close to home for me, man. That's <laughs> I, I, I'm not touching that with a ten foot uh with a ten foot uh yellow jammer hole. Uh, hole. I, I believe that the the law firm that she works at is called uh Peace Blossom, Mustard Seed, and Lavender. No, those are the names of the fairies in Midsummer. You found the zero percent joke, Matt. Nobody <laughs> 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 got in the world. I love it. You get a trophy. <laughs> oh, speaking on behalf of all humans, spam is delicious. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>